Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. Our first reading today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. All right, it's good to be back. You all feel good to be back in the chapel? Yeah, me too. All right, our second scripture reading is Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11. This is otherwise known as the Ascension. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And he replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing upward toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking upward toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so it's September, and you all know what that means. New sermon series time, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's what everybody looks forward to. Now, this year, we're going to do things differently than we've done it for the last two years. Last two years, we've done three 12-week series throughout the year. This year, we're going back to what I did when I came here four years ago. We're going to do a sermon series that spans the entire year with breaks during Advent and Lent. So let's hope that you really like what I'm doing <laughs> for the whole year. Now, I've realized that in the past, I have not done the best job of explaining to you what my sermon series is going to be all about. I just assumed you would be here every single week, and thus you would learn what it was that I was talking about as I went along. I have come to find, though, that not everybody comes to church every single week, which I know, I'm, I was as shocked as you are <laughs> to learn about this. And so my hope this morning really is to entice you to be here as often as possible, because I think what we're going to be talking about this year is really, really important to our future as a church. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be picking up where we left off two years ago with our Mark series. So what we're going to be talking about is how Jesus' movement formed and went on after his death and resurrection. This series is called Church and State, the Rise of Early 
Christianity. How cool is that graphic, by the way? Huh? That's pretty good. We're getting up there right now with our graphics. Uh, if you, the person who helps me do these is Lori Rulin. Do you know Larry Olson? I don't know if you know who he is, but that's his daughter. And so she's a graphic artist. She helps me do this stuff. So the whole idea is we're going to be looking at the history of the early church through the documents that we find in the New Testament. This will be a very biblical-based series. We're really going to be diving uh, a lot into the scriptures And if you line up the documents of the New Testament in the order in which they were written, it actually tells you a whole story about the early church. Now, I know some of you are thinking to yourself, Alex, you just shot yourself in the foot because preaching for a whole year on church history does not sound super enticing, right? Like, come here, if I was sitting where you are and the pastor said, church history for a whole year, I would say, I will see you in three months, I'll see you at Christmas, and (laughs) it should be good. But I promise you, there is more to this series than meets the eye. If you're willing to go with me on this, I think you will be surprised at just how messy and how crazy the early church actually was. And so, if you're willing to be here every week, or at least listen to what we've done online on that fancy new website that we have, if you're willing to at least listen to it, Not only are you going to come away from here with a wealth of information that you didn't have before, but you're going to come out of here a changed person. You will be amazed at the continuity between the issues that were faced by the early church 2,000 years ago and the issues that we face today in our world. They go right hand in hand together. And for me personally, I can tell you that once I understood the transformation of the early church from a small Jewish sect, which is how it started, into the official religion of the Roman Empire, I gained a lot of insight and understanding into my own faith journey. So this series is going to be a mirror into your own lives, and every one of you in here, you're going to find a little bit of your own faith journey in every single one of these topics. So this series is broken down into four different parts, and you can actually see this down here at the bottom how it's going to go. So the first part of the series, we're going to deal with the first generation of Christians. It's going to last from now all the way to the beginning of Advent. And it's going to deal with 30 to 70 AD. And then after Christmas, we're going to go to the second part of the series. It's going to deal with the second generation of Christians from 70 to 90 AD. And then after Easter, because we'll take a break during Lent, after Easter we'll go to the third part of the series, which is where things get really strange when we get into the third generation of Christians, and that's from 90 to 120. And then, for the last part, for late spring, going in to the rest of the summer, we're going to deal with 120 to 430, which is basically the church fathers and the church martyrs and all that stuff. And that's when, eventually, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. It's about 400 years of history in all. Now, before we can really start digging into this series, I need to take you back to where we ended in the last sermon of the series that we taught or that I was teaching in Mark, because we need to start from there if we're going to go forward. And I need to recap this for anybody who might not have been here, or for those of you all who may not remember what I said two years ago when I preached that sermon, which I know is super insulting because I'm sure all of you remember it perfectly, but let's just do it for the people who weren't here, right? Okay, so to begin with, one of the most important things that I talked about in that sermon was the role of crucifixion for the Roman government. 
the role of crucifixion for the Roman government. Now, what I explained to you all is that crucifixion was not unique to the Roman government. There were many nations around the world at that time that used crucifixion as a form of capital punishment. And the reason why is because it was cheap and it was public. All you needed was a tree or a plank and some rope or some nails to attach the person to it. That's all you needed to do it. Now, often the executioner was given discretion as to how the accused was to be hung on the cross. So the idea was sometimes they would be hung right side up, as you can see in this painting of Jesus. Other times they would be hung upside down. Often they were stripped naked for maximum shame. So even though Jesus is often portrayed as having a loincloth, the truth is he probably would have been naked when he was on the cross because the whole point was to make this the worst possible experience of your life before your life ended. One thing that happens on when it comes to crucifixion that isn't shown in the Gospels is that very often a person had been executed prior to being placed on the cross. We often think of it as the person was always alive. That's not always true. Sometimes the person would be killed and then placed on the cross. And so in that way, the cross was kind of like a display case for what had already occurred rather than a torture machine. The Romans became famous for crucifixion because they were the first to make the process uniform. They required that the executioner attach the hands to the crossbeam. So that was the one thing that made it unique. And so you always knew that the Roman government had done that to them because they had been attached to the crossbeam. Now, historically, the reason why governments engaged in capital punishment of crucifixion is actually quite simple. They wanted the public to know that under no circumstances will rebellion in any form be tolerated. Crucifixion was always performed in a very public space where everyone could see the results. Because the whole point of hoisting this person up in the air was to act as a deterrent for people engaging in the same behaviors. You with me so far? Okay. Now this is why Jesus was crucified in a very public place. If you remember from the Gospels, he's taken out to a hillside on the outskirts of Jerusalem, according to the Gospels. Now this hillside, it would have been public enough for everybody who was going about their daily activities to be able to see it. Now, this hillside was called what? Golgotha, which means place of the skull. How did you all know that? So, the place of the skull. Now, some Christians have argued that the place of the skull is a rock formation a few miles away from Jerusalem that looks like this. And the reason why they think it looks that way is because it looks like there's a skull actually built in to this rock formation. But that is not the place where people were crucified. That is too far away. They were crucified much, much closer. And the reason why this hill was called the place of the skull is because the hill was littered with human skulls from people who had been crucified. The way that those skulls got there is that the criminals were left on the cross, and once they had died, their bodies decomposed, and their bones literally fell to the ground, including their heads, and they were just left there 
on the ground. And this is what I really need you to hear and take away from this. The entire point of crucifixion was to leave the person on the cross for as long as possible as a reminder to the people around you, you don't want to be like that guy. But that's not what happens in the Gospels, now is it? What happens in the Gospels? So Jesus, he's convicted of treason, then he's crucified, and after he's crucified, what happens to him? He dies, and then his body is what? Removed from the cross, placed in a tomb. Now, what most Christians do not realize is that, historically speaking, it was highly, highly unusual. It was extraordinarily rare for a person to be taken down off of the cross in order to be buried. And the reason why is because that defeats the entire purpose of crucifixion. Why would you go through all this trouble to hoist this person up in the air if you were going to take them down immediately after they died? And so the gospel authors, they knew how rare this actually was. And so what they do is they mention this very important man, which makes this all kind of fit together. They mention this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. He was very wealthy, very politically connected, and ostensibly he could go to Pontius Pilate and he could say, Pilate, hey, I need Jesus' body. Can you give him to me? And Pilate would say yes. Now I'm going to tell you right now, in my opinion, I think that historically that is very unlikely. And here's why. The fact is, he would have needed permission from Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate, we know from historical records, hated the Jews with every fiber of his being. He was a brutal, cruel man who hated the fact that he had been placed in this area of the world. He did not want to be over in this area of Jerusalem and Syria and all this. He hated that area of the world. And he really disliked the Jews. So much so, to give you an example of just how much this guy disliked the Jews, what he would do is, he would actually put people up on the cross without even taking them to trial. And we know this because Jewish aristocrats wrote to the Roman emperor and they're like, hey, this guy is just killing people left and right, and he's not even putting them on trial. So, even if there was a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, If he did exist, the likelihood that Pilate would actually give him Jesus' body is real, real low. So, what that says to me, personally, is that more than likely, Jesus would have been left on the cross after he had died. And when his body had decomposed, his bones had fallen to the ground, he and all the other criminals who had been crucified alongside him, their bones would have been shoved into a mass grave. Now, There is one piece of evidence that supports this point of view in the New Testament. And this comes from the Apostle Paul, who we're going to talk about extensively over the next several weeks. Paul, he was a man who was responsible for planting churches all over the Mediterranean. I'm going to show you all these places where he planted these churches. Now, Paul, he wrote letters to these churches. And we have these letters in our New Testament. These letters, they predate the Gospels. Now, the Gospels, these are narrative, right? Narrative stories of Jesus' life. When we want to know about Jesus' life, we go to the Gospels. Now, these letters, they predate the Gospels. And in those letters, not once does Paul mention 
Jesus being buried in a tomb. He talks a lot about Jesus' crucifixion. He talks a lot about Jesus' resurrection. But when he talks about his burial, he just said, and we read this morning, he just says he was buried. And here's the big issue with this. We know that he knew all of Jesus' disciples who walked with him, who were with Jesus throughout his entire lifetime. If they spent time with him and they talked to him about Jesus, they would have told him that he had been buried in a tomb and he never once mentions it. Now what he does talk about very, very often, and what we read this morning is he says that following Jesus' burial, whatever that means, that people saw Jesus. He appeared to people. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 12 disciples. He appeared to the 500. And the last person who Jesus appeared to was, according to Paul, Paul himself. Now, I've just spent a whole lot of time deconstructing everything that you've ever thought was true about Jesus and what we celebrate on Easter and Good Friday and all that stuff, right? I've just taken all that and said, okay, that doesn't work, so we're going to stay with something else. Now, that said, I want to talk about this resurrection thing because it's very important. So 1 Corinthians, which is what we read this morning, that is a letter from Paul, that is a first-hand document, a document that was written by a man who was there at these events. And so what I think this tells us is that it is undeniable that in the aftermath of Jesus' death, that something happened to Jesus' disciples. They experienced something amazingly profound. And we know this to be true because they continued on Jesus' movement after he died. At great risk to themselves, they kept doing this. Now, the question we will never be able to answer is exactly what it is did they see? What what did they see at that time? We don't know. But what we do know is that Paul says Jesus appeared to his disciples. So the question that we're going to be asking or the question we need to explore is what did that appearance entail? So when I preached this sermon two years ago, I told you there were three different ways that the New Testament portrays Jesus' resurrection. There's three distinct ways that they do it. The first way is with John, and he talks about Jesus being kind of like a ghost or a spirit. So we're going to talk about that. Another way is through Matthew, Luke, and I guess you could say Mark 2, where basically they say that Jesus physically, bodily, came back to life. He was a physical person walking around. And then you have Paul's version of events, where he says that Jesus... His resurrection was kind of like a vision that people saw. Now, three years ago when I did this in the Mark series, I gave you these three options and I said, you choose which one you like. Today, I'm going to drill down and tell you which one I think is most likely. Now, before I do this, I'm going to say straight out to you, this is my opinion. It does not have to be your opinion. You can believe whatever you want to believe. I'm just giving you my point of view on it based on the history and the evidence that I put together. So do you have to believe what I'm saying? No. no. You can believe whatever you want to believe. I don't want anybody coming back to me saying, oh, well, he told me I had to, say this, to, to believe this. No, not true. I'm just giving you my perspective. Okay, let's start with the first one. We're going to look at Jesus as a ghost or spirit. This, is, this was written about in John. And in John, it's kind of strange. There are portions where Jesus can walk through walls, where 
Jesus appears and disappears in the presence of the disciples. Now, the reason why I tend to dismiss John's version of the resurrection is because the people who wrote it, and there were multiple people, not just one, it was written three generations after Jesus. It's three generations removed from Jesus. More importantly, it has the least in common with any of the other versions of the resurrection and Jesus' life in some ways. So, I just said that one to the side. That's why I do it. All right, this brings us to the second one, which stakes get a little bit higher with this one. So, this is Luke and Matthew. Mark doesn't really have Jesus appearing, but it's Luke and Matthew. Now, remember what I say. It's bodily, right? Physical. Jesus is walking around. He's talking. He's eating. He's doing everything that you and I do. Now, the reason why... I doubt this version of things is because it is so intimately tied to Jesus being buried in a tomb. And as we just talked about, the historical likelihood of Jesus being buried in a tomb is what? Kind of low, right? Now, I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it seems very low to me personally. And so therefore, because it's unlikely that he was buried in a tomb, it also feels unlikely to me that he would have been physically, bodily resurrected in that way, at least the way that it's portrayed in the Gospels. And so because I doubt that, I also kind of doubt the ascension, which we just read, because here's the deal. The ascension only takes place in one of the Gospels. There's only one time it's brought up, and that's in Luke-Acts. Luke is responsible for writing Acts. It happens at the end of Luke, the beginning of Acts, which is what we read this morning. This is what I think happened. I think Luke... He wrote his gospel, and he realized that he backed himself into a logical corner. Jesus physically came back to life, but he's not here anymore. So we got to do something with the body. So what he does is, the ascension is a very convenient way of saying Jesus physically came back to life, but his body is not here with us anymore. All right. That's why I dismissed the second one. This brings us to the third one. This is Paul's version of events of what happens in the aftermath of Jesus' death. And he describes it as a vision. Now, I think that this is the most likely of the three. Because the way he describes it is he says that this vision, it didn't just happen one time, it happened multiple times to multiple people on multiple different occasions. So again, I told you, it happens to Peter, right? And it happens to the 12, and it happens to the 500. And based on what Paul says, he says that Jesus appears in the sky, which I think is very interesting. That seems to be where Paul saw Jesus. He appears in the sky, and that may be, by the way, why Luke writes his ascension concept of him going up. He appears in the sky, and what we also know from Paul's letters is that there was an auditory component to this vision. We know that People heard words that Jesus said. Now, I don't know what exactly they heard, but clearly, whatever it was, it totally transformed their lives. It changed them forever. So, if you want to know, from my opinion, what can we hang our hat on as Christians? This is what we got. We got this one thing. We know that Jesus appeared, I would say, in a vision to multiple people on multiple different occasions, enough times to enough people that Jesus' disciples decided they needed to keep his movement alive. 
That's what we know. And you know what? That's enough for me. And you want to know why it's enough for me? Because here we are, 2,000 years later, talking about this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you know how much stuff in the world lasts 2,000 years? If you and I sat down together and we said, let's come up with something that people are going to be talking about 2,000 years from now, we couldn't do it. We would be lucky if we could get, come up with something that people would talk about beyond our lifetimes. Like our families who were like, you remember when they sat down and they tried to make up that thing that was going to last 2,000 years? It wouldn't work. The fact is, the fact that we're still talking about it, it's an amazing thing. But that is just the tip of the iceberg. This death and resurrection thing. Because it starts us on this whole journey to understand what happened afterwards. And here's the thing that most people don't realize about this. Yes, they witnessed something that changed their entire lives and caused them to go forward. Yes, that is true. But these same people who witnessed Jesus' resurrection, they disagreed about what Jesus' message was supposed to be. I'm going to show you in sermon after sermon after sermon that there was so much division, so much disagreement, so much infighting, that it's hard for us to even know what Jesus' real message actually was. There will be times when you will sit here and you will say to yourself, I'm surprised this whole thing didn't just collapse in on itself and die. That said, though, I'm going to do something I never do in my sermon series, which is I'm going to give you the takeaway of what we're going to be talking about 11 months from now, what the last sermon in the series, July of 2018, where we are headed with this whole thing. If what we are trying to do is answer the question, how did the church survive? How did the church make it when it shouldn't have? The answer to that question is found inside of every single one of you in here. And it's what connects you back to those men and women who experienced Jesus' resurrection some 2,000 years ago. Inside of you, there is something in your hearts that makes Jesus real to you. Whatever it was that those men and women experienced 2,000 years ago, it was enough that they carried Jesus in their hearts with them for the rest of their lives. And it didn't stop with them. They told the next generation about it. And the next generation, even though they hadn't witnessed it firsthand... That was enough to make it so that Jesus was real in their hearts as well. And then they told the next generation, and the next generation after that, until we come to you sitting here in 2017. For some reason, you sit in these pews because Jesus is real to you. Whatever that reason is. If you want to understand how the church made it through all of these years, Through all of these obstacles, through all of these barriers, all you have to do is look inside of yourself and ask the question, why is Jesus real to me? And when you stumble upon the answer to that question, you will stumble upon the reason why the church, as flawed as it is, will never die. It's going to be a great series. I hope you're as interested as I wanted you to be in it and that you'll come back next week. 
It's the roller coaster begins. Trust me, it gets crazy from day one. It doesn't take long for things to get off the rails. I look forward to seeing every single one of you back here next week. Amen. <laughs>